0: Well, good morning. Thank you to our musicians. Uh, They did an excellent job as they always do and loved that second song. Uh, That's probably unfamiliar to some of you, um, but it's by the group City of Light. I know Trevor was loving that. That's one of his favorites. Um, And so I uh, thoroughly enjoyed singing that, such rich theology. uh, And that's one of the things I love about our musicians is they're able to bring together uh, talent and music well done also with rich theology in the songs that we can worship the Lord with. So thank you, Audra and the rest of you, uh, for putting the time and effort into that and uh, helping aid our worship of the Lord in song this morning. Well, John 10 is where we're going to be. I love this passage. One of the ways that you could describe God's goal in all of creation. What was he he aiming at when he created the world and put human beings here? One of the ways you could describe that is to say this. God desires a people, a group of people, who dwell in his presence, in his place, the place he has created for them, under his authority, obeying his commands for his glory. God desires a people who dwell in his presence, in his place, under his authority, and for his glory. That's exactly what you find in the opening chapters of Genesis. You find Adam and Eve, God's people at that time, placed in the Garden of Eden, his place, and ultimately the whole world is his place, dwelling in his presence, under his authority, and made as images to reflect his glory. That sort of setup continues throughout the Bible. But there's always in Scripture a focus on a group of people who are created by God for his glory. They're created to dwell with him, to bless him as he blesses them, and to obey him and to worship him. I mean, you can think of different groups in Scripture, right? There's the the nation of Israel. The exact same thing follows with them. They're created for his glory for his glory, to dwell in a particular place that he's given them and to worship him there and obey his authority. You find that with the church, right? Ultimately, when you get to Revelation chapter 5, you find a multitude of people who are gathered around the throne, a people that have been saved out of the world, who are created for and put together into a group for God's glory, praising him. Now, when you think about those groups of people that God is calling out of the world for his own glory, one of the metaphors that is used throughout the Old Testament to to help us to understand that group of people is the metaphor of a flock of sheep. And often in the Old Testament, God is called the shepherd and his people, the nation of Israel, are called his sheep. One of the most familiar passages, maybe other than John 3 in all of Scripture, describes God this way. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now God's the ultimate shepherd, he is the the ultimate authority, but in Scripture he always places sort of under shepherds, leaders who will guide and who will lead his people in particular ways. They're supposed to mediate his word and help his people to obey God and to honor him and to bring him glory. You see this with the nation of Israel. In Numbers chapter 27, God tells Moses that he's going to pass off the scene, that he's going to die, and then Moses asks God if he will appoint a new leader to go before Israel and to guide them and to to help them. And I want you to hear how Moses asks this and how he thinks of this new leader. Numbers 27, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, "'Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation,' who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. That's exactly how Moses describes the nation of Israel. And of course, you know the story. Joshua is appointed as this shepherd. Maybe the clearest example of this in the Old Testament is David. David was literally a shepherd of sheep and ultimately became Maybe the greatest king over the nation of Israel. And this is exactly how he is described. 2 Samuel 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd. Missed the D there and the rest of that for some reason. But the point is, is that David is to be the shepherd Just like he was literally of sheep, he was to be the shepherd of God's people, the nation of Israel. Now, these passages are just a tiny sample of what you can find in the Old Testament. This metaphor is pervasive throughout the Old Testament scriptures relating and teaching us how to understand the nation of Israel and their relationship to God as their shepherd. But here's the problem that you see in the Old Testament. You probably know where this is going. Every human shepherd fails in this regard. Moses fails. David fails. They fail to properly lead, to properly guide, to rescue, to protect God's people. Even the best of them fail, but some of them are not even. It seems like they're not even trying. They're using the sheep. They're wicked, and they use the sheep, God's sheep, for their own selfish ends. They exploit them and abuse them in order to get what they want and live how they want to. But in the midst of all of this, with all the good and all the bad, God promises that one day he's going to send a shepherd who would finally guide and protect his people as they truly need it. Micah chapter 5 anticipates this. You know this is a Christmas passage, but listen to how it describes the coming shepherd or the coming one, the coming Messiah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. So this shepherd is supposed to come but here's the question, how would his people recognize him? How would they know who he was to be, that he was the one that was promised in the Old Testament, the one who was like David, only a true shepherd, who would never fail. How would they know and recognize him? That's the question that we want to answer today in John chapter 10. So if you're not there, flip over to John 10. We'll be in the passage that Zach read, verses 1 to 21. And here's what we're going to see. Four ways to recognize God's good shepherd. Four ways to recognize God's good shepherd. And the first of these is by negation. You can see the religious leaders in Israel and you can say, okay, this is not what it's supposed to be like. His shepherd is not supposed to behave like these leaders do. So as you get into John 10, as always, when you're studying and reading your Bible, you have to look at the context. You have to understand what's come before the particular passage that you're reading. And so you can't make sense of the shepherd language here and what Jesus is getting at here unless you go back to what took place in John chapter 9. Well, what happened there? In John 9, Jesus healed a man who had been blind from his birth. And when he healed this man, the man slowly began to understand exactly who Jesus was. And ultimately, he ended up believing in Jesus and worshiping him at the end of the chapter. That whole experience exposed the blindness of the Pharisees. They cannot and will not see who Jesus is. They're spiritually blind. And they got so angry, not just at Jesus, but at this man who had been healed. They got so angry with him. They argued with him, accused him of being sinful from his birth, and that's why he was blind. And then they cast him out of the synagogue. They wouldn't even allow him to participate in their faith and their religion anymore. Now think about it, these men are supposed to be the spiritual leaders in Israel, and yet, here they are trying to get the people to believe that a man receiving his sight was a wicked and a heinous act of rebellion against God. That's what they wanted the people to buy into. And so it's against that backdrop, and this man being healed, and then being cast out of the synagogue, it's against that backdrop, that you read chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Look there. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And so Jesus begins to use this metaphor of a shepherd and his sheep by talking about the structure of a sheepfold. Now, a sheepfold, we're not very familiar with sheep. We're always surprised when we're driving down the road somewhere in the United States and we see them out in a field. (gasps) Those are sheep. Cows we get, sheep we don't really get. But a sheepfold is an enclosure, an area that was protected on all sides at this time, probably by large stones, maybe by a fence, possibly by a wall. And you get the idea of this, right? It's an enclosure. There's one entrance into the sheepfold, and the shepherd would lead the sheep in at night through the gate, through the door, and the sheep are then safe, and they're protected from harm. While the sheep are in there and the door has been shut, if someone tries to get in, not by going through the door, but by climbing up the sides and entering in another way, You would know that that individual had sinister intentions for the sheep. He was going to kill or he was going to rob. Now, Jesus here starts to use this metaphor, but it's not like he just pulls this out of thin air. It's not like he just happened to see some sheep by the side of the road and started talking this way. I've already shown you how pervasive this metaphor is in the Old Testament. Over and over again, it's used to describe the relationship between God and his people and then to describe God's appointed leaders as shepherds. And so it's all over the place, but there's one passage in particular that I think forms the background of this passage and that Jesus is clearly alluding to. And I want you to turn to this passage this morning. It's Ezekiel chapter 34. And I'll give you a minute to find Ezekiel. Although, in your favor, it is a very large book. Ezekiel 34 is where we're going to be. What Jesus says in John 10 is drawn out of this passage and a couple of others, but this would be the clearest passage that it is drawn out of. And it's so obvious that I want to read a huge chunk of this to you. So listen to this and think about the Pharisees in light of this passage, Ezekiel 34. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 16, all right? This is against the leaders of Israel In the Old Testament time, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice." Notice the difference here between the shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders, and God's tender and compassionate care for his people. The religious leaders use the people. They exploit the sheep for their own selfish ends. And Jesus uses this picture from Ezekiel 34 to describe what they are doing and then to help us understand the good shepherd who has come. I mean, you have to take note of verse 11 and 12 in Ezekiel. Right? I mean, look what God says here. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness." And then later he says that he will lead them to good pasture himself. God promises in Ezekiel 34 to show up. He promises to come to his people and to find his sheep and to shepherd them and lead them to goodness himself. And that brings us, with that backdrop, to our second way to recognize God's good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice and follow him. It's against that backdrop of selfish exploitation that now we begin to see this beautiful picture positively of what the good shepherd looks like. Look at verses three through five back in John 10. To him, the shepherd, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, it was pretty common during this time for the sheep to be able to recognize the voice of their shepherd. I think in some ways this is probably like your dog. When you call out to your dog, it's not just that you call their name, they know your voice. And this is the situation. The sheep are able to recognize the sound of the shepherd's voice. But notice here, it goes beyond just recognizing his voice. Here, the shepherd has a name for each one, and he calls them out individually. Three times in verses 3 to 5, we read about the voice of the shepherd. The sheep know his voice, and they willingly follow his voice. And he cares for them individually. Now when you think about following Jesus, that phrase that is so common as a way to describe discipleship, I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about your own process of being a Christ follower. But my guess is this morning that some of us here think of following Christ as more of a burden than as a a restful delight, because that's the image that's given here. It's like we have in our heads, I know I feel this way at times, I think of Jesus more like a drill sergeant that is making us run with a heavy burden. It is hard to follow him. But what Jesus gives us here against the backdrop of these abusive and exploitative shepherds of Israel is he gives us the image of following him as more like sheep recognizing the voice of their shepherd, and they find it soothing and good. And they love to hear his voice. They are drawn to it. When he calls them by name, they come to him because they like him. They want to be around him. There's a personal affinity between the shepherd and his sheep. When the shepherd calls them by name, there's a restful delight that he is near. There's a comfort. The sheep thinks things like this, he's good, I'm safe, he's in control, no matter what's going on outside of the sheepfold, the shepherd is here, I don't have to fear, and so as long as the shepherd is with me and I hear his voice and know his voice, I am going to follow him wherever he may lead. And I want to ask you this morning, is is that your experience with Jesus? Because that's the experience that he offers to his sheep. That's the way it should be for each one of us. And that's that's the experience he longs for us to have with him, to trust him and to find his voice soothing and good and restful even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Now, of course, that's not at all the way that the religious leaders find Jesus. In fact, they are spiritually blind. and I think you could say spiritually deaf as well. They demonstrate that once again. Look at verse 6. This figure of speech or this metaphor Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, up until this point, if you'll notice, I know I've been talking about Jesus as if he's the shepherd, and we'll get to that, but so far in this passage, he actually hasn't identified himself as the shepherd. What he's done is he's sort of painted this this metaphorical world. He's painted this picture of a sheepfold and of shepherds or of, of a shepherd. And he's painted this picture and now he's going to, since they don't understand it, he's going to get into the details of this and he's going to pull out two parts of this and he's going to apply those to himself to help his original hearers, but ultimately to help us to understand his role as the Messiah and as the good shepherd. And these two images that he pulls out, the door or the gate and the shepherd, are going to be our next Two ways to recognize him. And here's what happens because he is the door. He gives access to abundant life. This is in verses 7 through 10. So Jesus described in verse 1 a sheepfold, and there's a door or a gate to get into the sheepfold. And now he returns to that image. Look at verse 7. So, Now Jesus identifies himself as the gate or the door into the sheepfold here. What is he getting at? Why use this metaphor? Several things. Notice verse nine. He says here, if anyone enters by me. One of the things Jesus is getting at here is he is the only way into the sheepfold. He's the entrance. There is a singular point of entry into a relationship with God and into the sheepfold. It's very similar to what you will read later in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this morning, I just want to affirm to you, despite... What you may hear in the broader culture, in the world around you, at work, whatever. People are pushing you to believe about the way to enter into a relationship with God, to have eternal life, to live life to the fullest. I want to affirm to you today that there are not many paths to God. There are not lots and lots of options that you can simply pick from. God is not at the top of the mountain and there are a number of different pathways up to him. That is not how this works. Jesus makes that point here by saying, I am the door, the gate. There is one entry way. God has not been silent on this. It is not confusing. It's hard to accept and hard to hear. But Jesus is very, very, very clear on this. He spoke very plainly about this right here. There's one way in, and it's through him, but what's amazing about this is when you enter through that singular door, the benefits are unimaginably good. He provides for his sheep lavishly, above and beyond what we could ever imagine or expect. Look at the two benefits that are mentioned in verse 9 there. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, what happens? He will be saved. It's the first benefit. And will go in and out and find pasture. Now that word saved, I know. When you hear that, that has sort of this dull ring of Christian cliche to it, which is very unfortunate It's because it's used so often in Scripture, and we hear it all the time, to be saved. But this is the primary thing that Jesus does for his sheep. When you enter by the door, you are saved. Jesus saves his sheep. He rescues them from their sin, from death. When you use this metaphor, it's very easy to picture this when you think about a sheepfold, right? You enter into the sheepfold, entrance into the structure provides safety, rest, and protection under the watchful eye of the shepherd. You enter through him and you are rescued from all the harm that can come outside of his care. The second benefit is at the end of verse 9. Look there again. He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Not only is there salvation in the sheepfold through the good shepherd, through the door, but now this is describing this picture where the sheep can move in and out and find everything that they need. It's all that they need is available to them. Now this language of going in and out, you read this earlier talking about the leaders of Israel shepherding the people But this language is actually taken from Deuteronomy 28 and verse 6. And look how it's phrased here. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Now, I've pulled this verse out of the passage and read it to you, but you can see here it's describing the blessing that comes from being able to go in and out. And the reason that word blessed is used to describe the sheep as they go in and out is because this is within a passage, Deuteronomy 28, that's enumerating covenant blessings for Israel. And so this passage is God saying, look, if you will dwell with me and you will worship me and only me and you will obey my word and you will abide by my covenant, I will provide everything that you need. And so when Jesus picks up this language here, he's saying when you enter through the door, you enter into a covenant relationship with God and you find everything that you might need within that covenant relationship with him. That's the nature of entering through the singular point of entry, the door. This language here sounds very similar, I think, to Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There's the image of the shepherd leading the sheep in and out and giving them sustenance and satisfaction and provision as they follow him. And as they hear his voice and delight in him. I think this idea of abundance and provision of covenant blessing gets expanded in verse 10. Look there. As Jesus continues to talk about the significant benefits of being under the leadership of him as as the shepherd and entering through the door. Look at verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This expands on the idea of abundance. Abundance. The abundance that we receive as we enter through the door. There is a fullness of life that Jesus gives to his sheep as they enter through him. The word abundantly here. This word describes going above and beyond what can be reasonably expected. It's like it's just piled, the blessings are piled on top. It is extravagant provision that he gives. And Jesus is promising that we will experience new life in him, eternal life. That is part of this. And it will be full and complete and satisfying. And that experience will happen now. It's not that you'll get everything you want, but you will get the satisfaction and joy and delight in covenant relationship with him through Christ. Now, if we're honest for a second here, let's try, to, let's try to boil the human experience down to the one thing that every person sitting here, and I think every person on earth is pursuing. It's this. It's life abundantly, a fullness of experience, ringing every bit of happiness you can out of the time that you have on this earth. This is what everybody is searching for. Every decision, I would say, that every person makes every day, whether you realize it or not, is aimed at this. Finding happiness. Finding satisfaction. And finding joy. All that you do, from the smallest thing in the morning to the biggest life-impacting decision that you will make this week, All of it is aimed at this. And people have understood this for a long time. Here's a quote from an ancient Greek philosopher, Seneca. Listen to what he said thousands of years ago. There is not anything in this world, perhaps, that is more talked of and less understood than the business of a happy life. It is every person's wish and design. And yet not one of a thousand knows wherein that happiness consists. We live, however, in a blind and eager pursuit of it. And the more haste we make in a wrong way, the further we are from our journey's end. A blind and eager pursuit of it. Bumping into walls, smashing our toe on things, and continually heading off in the wrong direction. And Jesus is saying here that you don't have to live in that blind and eager pursuit of it. Of happiness and an abundant and full life. Jesus provides it. He is the entryway into a relationship with God which is what we were created to have and to experience and where we were created to find our joy and our happiness and our fullness and our satisfaction. Another author put it like this, to be sure, things in the created world can fulfill many of our needs, yet we also have a most significant need that only God can satisfy. If there is both a creator and a creation, then the mistake of all mistakes is to think that created things on their own can replace and satisfy the need we have for the creator. The creation can't do it. It is simply not designed to do so. Only God can fulfill the role that God is supposed to fulfill in our lives. That's it. It's the mistake of all mistakes. It's to blindly and eagerly run off in the wrong direction, pursuing abundant life. And only the door, only the door opens up the pathway to life and life abundantly. Only the door can bring us to God. And the question is, how does he do this? How does the door bring us to God? How is he the entryway to come into a satisfying and full and rich relationship with the creator God of the universe? The answer is found in the rest of this passage. As the good shepherd, he's not only the entryway, but he becomes the entryway as he lays down his life For his sheep. Verses 11 through 21. Look at verse 11. Let's read to verse 13. Now he gets into the second metaphor that he pulls out of this world that he's created of a sheepfold and a shepherd and thieves and robbers and sheep. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I mean, this makes sense. The hired hand runs when the stakes are high. His life is threatened and he is out of there. But not the good shepherd. This is not how he treats the sheep. I love this word good that is used here. We think of Jesus as the shepherd, but it specifically says here that he is the good shepherd. And that word is is pretty broad. You can translate it a whole bunch of different ways. You, You could translate it, he's a noble shepherd. He's a beautiful shepherd. He's an honorable shepherd. Why is he all of those words and descriptions? Because he lays down his life for the sheep. Why does he lay down his life for the sheep? Well, one of the reasons is found in verses 14 and 15. Look there. He knows them. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice the language in verse 15. For the sheep. On behalf of the sheep. In other words, he is a substitute for them. Jesus does not die to give us only an example of how to love one another. He does give us an example, but that's not all he's doing. He's not just saying, hey, watch this and act like this. He dies in our place The shepherd gives his life on behalf of the sheep and for the sheep in order to atone for their sins so that the sheep can be forgiven and enter into the sheepfold and into abundant life. Now what's so amazing about this picture here is that this very picture and the words I'm going to read to you next include you and me in them. This is a beautiful thing. Even though we weren't there and weren't listening, even though we weren't first century Jews hearing the word of Jesus through the word of God passed down to us and through the mission that God has for his gospel. Look at what verse 16 says. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There was always an expectation in the Old Testament that Gentiles would be included in God's covenant with his people. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Think about the implications of what he says here. And specifically here when he says, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. God has been consistently and faithfully gathering his flock For the last 2,000 years as the gospel has spread around the world. And let me encourage you this morning. If you're sitting here and you've heard the gospel and responded to it. It's not just that Jesus hopes that people will respond when the gospel is proclaimed. It's that his sheep chosen before the foundation of the world will hear his voice as the spirit gives them life. And they will believe and they will follow him. And this is the glory of grace. And this should put us on our faces in worship before God. You and I are all the blind man in John 9. We're him. We're born with no way to get ourselves out of this situation. And Jesus graciously gives sight to that man by his own sovereign will. That's always been God's plan. That's been his plan from the very beginning. Look at verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The purpose of the triune God was to choose a people out for himself and to call them and then to offer the good shepherd as a sacrifice for the sheep and draw those people through the proclamation of the gospel by the spirit to himself so that they enter through the door. The entry point, the one way to the father. And so it should be clear and easy to recognize the good shepherd, to recognize who he is. And I don't know this morning if you in your life maybe have realized that you've been looking elsewhere for abundant life. You've been looking to something else to give you purpose and to lead you and to guide you and to give your soul life and satisfaction and joy. If you've been maybe looking elsewhere for shepherding and for purpose. But it should be easy this morning for you to recognize that we don't just have a shepherd, we have a good shepherd who is the entry point and provides all that we need through him laying down his life for the sheep. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that we've seen this morning. I pray that you would use this metaphor to get deep into our souls and to to move things around and rearrange our loves and desires and affections. I pray that we would recognize where we have gone astray. We would recognize what we have pursued for joy and abundance apart from you. And I pray that we would turn from that in repentance and recognize that we have a good, gracious, and loving shepherd who is there waiting for us loving us to the point where he will lay down his life for our good. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray.